from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Barbara Lading. Since the age of four, Barbara has wanted to live in another country. Although that was her childhood wish, she wasn't able to live in another country, but she had opportunities to travel around the world. Barbara is an associate professor of special education at the University of South Florida. I started the interview by asking Barbara where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up outside of Chicago. It was cold and dreary, (laughs) but we had a warm family life. And what was religious life like growing up? Well, I suppose a little bit unusual because my dad felt that you could worship God at any house of worship. So what we usually did is we just went to the house of worship that was closest to us, whether it was Christian science or Methodist. We visited a Jewish synagogue. So Mm -hmm. we we just did a variety of churches. So was it like a a continuous integral part of your life, just visiting different religious institutions or religious houses of worship? For the most part, yeah. Yeah we would go to pretty much the nearest one. <laughs> <laughs> so your your parents didn't really ascribe to any particular religious denomination or religion, yet they they instilled a, a, a belief in God and spirituality. Yes. I think my mom had been a member of the Methodist Church growing up, mm-hmm. and my dad grew up having a Baha'i father and a Congregationalist mother. So he went to Congregationalist church, and on occasion they had things that children could go to for his Baha'i community. So your father was raised uh, by one of the parents as a Baha'i? Mm-hmm. And did he bring that to the uh, religious equation as, uh, in you growing up? The faith was not really mentioned by him or my mother, but he definitely instilled many, many of the principles that I would later encounter and realize that the source was from the Baha'i faith. So, Mm -hmm. for example, they named me Lee, spelled like a boy, because they believed that we had to eliminate the sexism and women had to reach their full potential. So they didn't want people to automatically assume that I was one gender or another gender when I went to get jobs or something like that. They thought it would be an advantage. They definitely (laughs) showed me that you could worship God uh, from many, many different perspectives. My dad was a scientist, and he taught me that science and religion are basically in complete harmony if you just knew it all, you know, from... There's a continuum. And then 
and they also instilled a, a, a oneness of the human family concept. I grew up in a time when civil rights was actively changing the racial divide, and they were very much on the side of uh, we're all one, and um, there's one race, the human race. My dad was the very first person to hire an African-American in our, the town that we lived in. Hmm. Interesting. What were your interests growing up? I liked math and science. I liked uh, to take foreign languages because I wanted to live in some other country when I grew up. Where do you think that came from? <laughs> well, the other name that they gave me was Barbara, which means foreign. I don't know. You know, <laughs> since the age of four, I, I had wanted to live in another country. But you, you hadn't traveled to other countries. It's just something that just came upon you growing up. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether my dad had started bringing visitors from other countries that early or not. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But as a young child, at least by, by the age of nine, um, my dad worked for National Science Laboratory where we were having visitors from Japan and Germany and all, many different places, Norway, and they would come to our house and bring us some kind of gift from some other country, and I just thought it was fascinating. My, we Every month, my parents would take me downtown Chicago, and we would try out a different restaurant, a different ethnic restaurant, so that I could taste different foods, because they wanted to, me to be comfortable eating food from any different culture. So you were familiar with the Baha'i faith on the get-go? Well, <laughs> kind of and, and kind of not. My my great aunt was the person that, that was the most active in the Baha'i faith. So we went to visit her once a month when we were living in that area until the age of nine. And sometimes we would drive by the house of worship. Sometimes we'd go in the house of worship. Sometimes we'd go to the bookstore and she'd buy us a book. Sometimes she would take us into her office. Uh, she happened to be the first paid employee of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is in the United States. I was a stamp collector, and so she would reach in her, her drawer and pull out postcards from all over the world with all these different stamps and give them to me. And I didn't realize at that point that she was in charge of corresponding with Baha'is who were living in, in all kinds of different countries. So that's how she got all the stamps. I just thought she was a really neat person to have friends all over the world. What were the sequence of events that led you to committing yourself to the Baha'i faith? Ah, good question. Well, when I was in high school, from the age of nine until high school, we had moved far away from Illinois. And so I was no longer visiting my great aunt or grandfather on a regular basis, and the, any connection, a conscious connection that I had with the Baha'i faith had vanished. And so in high school, I had a teacher who taught American studies, studying ethnic and religious minorities in the United States. And our class voted to take a field trip focused on religious minorities. And since we were there in the Chicagoland area, there was an automatic tour set up that included uh, the Baha'i House of Worship, among other places. 
So that happened to be our last stop for the day, and it was fantastic. The guide that I had was very knowledgeable and radiant and loving, and we just were just amazed. The whole class was amazed. And various people did their turn paper on the Baha'i face, and one of my friends, I was I was dating a fellow from Brazil, he started going to firesides, and his mother, who was extremely Catholic, um, as you might imagine, called me up and said, Barbara, please, please go to this meeting and, you know, talk some sense into him. I think he's going to do something crazy and, you know, join this thing. So I wrote down 21 questions on a piece of lined paper and folded it up and put it in my purse, and I went to the meeting with them. And I, you know, I thought, well, let me let them get going. And so they started the meeting, and they extended such wonderful hospitality, a very loving household. And as the speaker started, I noticed that he had magically answered the first question. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's a coincidence. And then, to my surprise, he answered the second question and the third without me asking them at all. I, my paper was like right behind my purse. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. Well, maybe I better just listen. So then he answered the fourth through eleventh question. Not four, five, six, seven, but he jumped around a little bit. But by that time, it finally dawned on me that I was in the middle of some kind of miracle happening. <laughs> it, it couldn't be a coincidence at that point, and. So I really just stopped and listened, and I was enthralled. And I left that night with my boyfriend thinking, this is exactly what I believe. I didn't know anybody else believed this. So I started going to firesides as well and reading books. And when I mentioned to my parents that I was thinking about joining the Baha'i faith, they looked at me in utter amazement, and they said, oh, what do you know about the Baha'i faith? Now, I didn't realize that they, at that point, knew a whole lot more about the Baha'i faith than I did. So I was assuming that they knew nothing. And so I you know, told them what I knew, and very quickly they exhausted my knowledge with their questions. And they said, you know, you better do some more studying. This is a big decision, and you need to think about this. And why don't you go talk to our, our minister? So I went and talked to the minister. And he was so excited. He said, oh, if I hadn't been at the tail end of my theological training, I would have become a Baha'i too. Here, have you read this book and have you read that book? And he had all these Baha'i books on his shelf. So he, you know, kind of gave the blessing <laughs> to, <laughs> to go ahead. And so I went back to my parents and, and they said, well, if you're going to be a member of the Baha'i faith, then we better arrange for some study classes for you. So then they invited wonderful, very knowledgeable Baha'is to come to our house because actually six people from my high school class became Baha'is. But we didn't know of any adult Baha'is in our area. So we were just on our own <laughs> for a while until my parents got Baha'is to come and have classes for us. So what influence did your interest in the Baha'i faith have on your father? He was happy. Mm -hmm. I think he was very happy. 
because he knew that following the Baha'i teachings would keep me behaving in a very high moral standard, <laughs> and <laughs> hopefully, you know, I would be able to uh, skip the um, the drug experimentation phase and the alcohol experimentation phase, and he just thought that it it was a good religion, and he always said that he was glad that there were people like me who were dedicated to really creating the world of peace and unity and eliminating prejudice. He was, he was proud of me. Mm, that's sweet. <laughs> and so you became a Baha'i in high school? Yep. And how would you say becoming a Baha'i informed your decisions going forward, you know, being in high school? Well... I really think it enriched my decision-making process. Um, I remember consulting with my local spiritual assembly about, uh, you know, what major should I choose or which school should I go to, and they would share with me the extensive writings that we have to guide us in choosing a career path and being of service to the world of humanity. And So I really think it helped me from the very beginning, set out on a path of service. So what major did you choose? I decided to um, become a speech-language pathologist and then later a special ed teacher. What were the reasons that sort of led you in that direction? Uh, Well, I wanted to go live in Africa, and when I went over there, I was about 19 years old, And I noticed that they had folks there who had had strokes and were having a hard time speaking. And I knew that there was some major, you know, some profession that helped people who had had strokes. So that was one. And then they took me to visit a a place where they, they said that people who were mentally ill, criminally insane, or deaf, all of those people lived in this particular institution. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't think the deaf people should be there. Mm. <laughs> Why are they there? Yeah. There should be a school for people who are deaf. They, they should get a regular education. And little did I know that there was a school for the deaf in Africa, you know, since in that particular country since like 1886. But the family that I was living with didn't didn't really realize the difference. So I, when I came back and went and went to the career assessment center, they said, "Well, actually, you can do both of these things with the same major." Hmm. <laughs> so I was really happy. Now, what was the opportunity that uh, allowed you to go to Africa? I went to McAllister College in Minnesota, and they really, really encourage international study because they really think that having an international experience will make you a better world citizen. And and it matched with my desire to become a world citizen from my Baha'i training. So just about every student does something internationally at that school. They also encourage volunteerism and service. So I chose the school based on how well I thought that it fit with my Baha'i aspirations. Oh, yeah. I forgot to ask you. What, do you remember any of the 20 questions that you had that, that you brought to the Baha'i meeting? You know, I wish I had kept the piece of paper, but I was just so amazed 
that he just kept answering them that I, you know, I put it away and I never looked at it again. But all of my questions were answered. You know, for me, it was a miracle that mm. without knowing the questions, he just answered them all. Did you get a bachelor's then? Yes, I got a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. and I started working at a school for the deaf and with the intention of pioneering or going to live in another country um, when I graduated. But when I graduated, I found out that my degree was kind of halfway, the halfway point to the professional degree, that you really had to get a master's degree to be certified, licensed, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So then I embarked on getting my graduate degree, and I found a, a lovely job. I went to live in a little bitty town um, away from the Twin Cities because I was hoping to um, find like-minded folks there who might be interested in the Baha'i faith. So I moved to that little town and worked at the School for the Deaf there and did my graduate program. And so then after you got your graduate degree, what did you do? Well, along about that point, I found a, a wonderful person to marry. <laughs> <laughs> and he was from East Africa, Uganda. And so we got married. And the big twin cities recruited me away from the School for the Deaf. And so I moved up to... Uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis. Oh, and then we moved to Illinois and then Indiana. We were getting closer and closer to our, both of our goal was our, our goals were to move back to Uganda. So I went to visit. I loved it in Uganda. I got to meet his family and so I had I had a, a lifelong desire to move there. Still haven't done it, but uh, one of these days. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, my first husband passed away, and in his will, he left land for my son. And so we can go back if we if we get our ducks in a line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was your parents' reaction to you marrying, marrying an African? Good question. Let me start off by saying he was quite a gentle person. I believe that each culture has mastered some virtue or some kind of aspect of spirituality that we can all learn from. And I'm, I'm clearly convinced that his tribe, his tribe has mastered uh, gentleness, mm. among other things. And so he was very gentle person, very soft-spoken, uh, very considerate. And at first, my parents were not thrilled because they were worried that he was just marrying me to uh, get a green card so that he could stay in the United States. Uh, they didn't know whether he truly cared for me. We talked about it, and he knew that I really wanted, needed my parents' blessing and my parents' encouragement. And so his father was totally in favor of it and was really neat when I was in Uganda. He sent presents for my family to join the two families together. So my parents came around, let's just say. <laughs> they, they gave us permission. 
That's great. How long were you in Uganda when you went to, um, the you first were, time? Yeah, I think it was about a month. It was in 1980, right after Idi Amin was removed from the country, and so food was very expensive, and the whole society was just kind of trying to put themselves back together. But I was able to go again in 1995, I think, and um, bring my son after my husband had passed away. We had a wonderful visit at that time, too. And how long were you there at that time? Well, I was there for three weeks, Mm -hmm. and then my son stayed for the summer. And then I, I had to go on to Israel. I was giving a professional presentation. And so I, the only thing I did was I, I linked him up with the Baha'is at the National Center and um, an American who, whose husband worked for a bank, so they had a car, and she promised to bring him to the airport on time. So once I knew that he was going to actually get on the airplane, I, I felt like he was in good hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So do you have any stories from your first trip going to Uganda when you were young? Well, I had to learn to speak Luganda, and I was pretty fluent at that point. There was kind of a funny thing where they have a, a greeting that goes back and forth 16 times. Oh, it's my. very formal. And so I had memorized this. I had memorized my part of it, and I kind of knew what the other person was supposed to say. And at a certain point, his dad said something different, and I just <laughs> kind of froze, and I thought, oh, no. If I say my next thing, will it be, like, ridiculous? Will it not flow? And that was the one time when my husband just kind of poked me and said, go ahead, it's an alternate response. (laughs) 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 And so I went ahead and said the rest of my greeting. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And how about your second visit? Any interesting stories from that visit? Well, for that one, um, my, my mission was to write down the family tree. For my, for my son, because I knew that they had it, both in, in oral tradition and in a, in a written form. But I had to speak to my sister-in-law, who spoke no English whatsoever. So I'm pretty amazed that I was able to get her to understand what I wanted. And I just took the, the family picture, and I kept just saying, and this person, this person's mother is who? And this person's father is who? And then I would say, and that person's mother? And that person's father? (laughs) And so very quickly, and I started drawing this tree uh, with the names. And she said, oh, Lindako, which means wait. She ran in the other room and she brought back this multi-page document that she proceeded to read to me as if I was totally comprehending it. (laughs) And I would just write it down and write it down and copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it. And then I took it to one of the younger relatives, and he translated it. And guess how many generations we could we could trace his lineage back to? Nineteen. Oh, so maybe you could tell listeners uh, what the significance of that is for someone who's not a Baha'i. <laughs> well, we have nineteen original apostles of the Bab that were called Letters of the Living. Um, so it was amazing for me to find out mm. that we could trace trace back 19 generations. And I, I said to him, do you think that your classmates 
can trace their lineage back 19 generations. (laughs) So it gave him a a pride that I, I didn't think was unhealthy. I thought it was good that he really realized where he came from, his roots, and Mm -hmm. that he came from a very civilized background in, in terms of the culture. Uganda was declared a protectorate of Britain instead of being a colony because it had a king, it had a whole system of education, garbage removal, health care, and it was all organized. And so I wanted my son to realize that. Uh, you mentioned the Bob. Now, can you mm-hmm. explain to uh, the listeners what the relationship is between the Bob and the Baha'i Faith? Sure. The Bob, and it's spelled B-A-B, means the gate. And the Bob went around uh, Iran, it was Persia at that time, and he was teaching new information that he had received from God, and he was preparing people for the coming of one who was even greater, had even more information than he could share at that point. So in the, and that person that he was preparing people for was named Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God in English. And in the Baha'i faith, we really view both of those messengers of God as twin, twin messengers, twin reflections of God. Manifestations of God. Uh, let's go back to you going from the Twin Cities to Illinois to Indiana. Where did life take you? <laughs> After that, well, I got another college degree. I love going to school. And so at that point, um, I had enough qualifications to uh, apply for jobs to be a professor. So I applied and got uh, jobs jobs offered to me from Peoria, Illinois, and uh, a historically black institution in Virginia, and uh, a college in Nashville, uh, Peabody University. And when I told my mom these three places, she said, wow, Barbara, you have a chance to go anywhere in the country and you're still going to a place that has winter. (laughs) Why don't you just go to a place where you'd like to be when you retire and then you'll just be there the whole time. So I instead chose to go to Florida. So, and I've been there ever since. I train people who are going to be either special educators or elementary educators by giving them information about how to accommodate children with disabilities or exceptionalities such as giftedness, gifts and talents. Now, have you had an opportunity to travel as you wanted to when you first started your college career? Hmm. Well, I I haven't counted up how many countries I've been to, but yes. I just haven't been able to live there permanently, and Mm. that was my my first wish. So I've been, I stayed with a wonderful Muslim family in Turkey, and then I was able to go to Israel on pilgrimage two times and then stop over in London and visit one of my son's half-sisters and go to Jamaica. My, after my first husband died, I, I married a, a person who was a Baha'i, and he was asked to go 
to Jamaica in 2000, I want to say 2004. And so he was accompanying um, a Baha'i who had been raised in Jamaica, and he was about 92 at the time, and he really wanted to go back and visit his relatives. But he knew he couldn't do it by himself. So he asked my husband to go with him, and I said, sure. So then once they were gone, of course, within a month, I missed them so much that I thought, oh, I want to go visit them. So one of the professors next to me in my office was from Jamaica herself, and she said, hey, I'll get you on the program for this literacy conference, and you can give a presentation to our future teachers and and uh, visit your husband at the same time. So that's what I did. So I've, mm. I've visited a lot of different places. So, I went to I went to West Africa and East Af- Africa also. What countries in West and East Africa? Um, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Nigeria. Uh, Uganda and Kenya. Your trip to Turkey sounded interesting. What was the opportunity there? Well, I, <laughs> you know, life, life. You just have to go with what life brings you. You, you just have to trust that this is the right thing at the time. And I was in a grocery store and I saw this young woman just puzzling over the ketchups, all the different ketchups that we had, and she just had no idea which one to get. And she saw me coming close, and she really hesitantly asked me, um, do you know anything about all these ketchups and how they taste? Are they all the same, or you know, can you help me? So I helped her pick a ketchup, and then she said, oh, you are such a good teacher. Could you be my English teacher? I'm trying to get into college, but I can't pass the TOEFL, the, the, the test that you have to take. And I said, well, sure, what the heck. So I came to her apartment, and I tutored her sister and herself in English. And her mother was visiting from Turkey, and she would cook delicious, delicious meals and at the conclusion, when, when her daughters were, you know, passing their, their uh, English tests, she said to me, in, in my tradition, we really, really revere teachers very, very highly. And the only way for us to repay you is for you to come visit us in Turkey. So it, whenever you come to Turkey, you will stay with us. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think there's really any chance of me going to Turkey anytime soon, but I filed it away. These girls were amazing. They, at a certain point, they asked me a question where I had to reveal that I was a member of the Baha'i faith. They, they had a question for me, and I thought, well, I don't know whether they're going to continue to want me to be their teacher or not, but here goes. Honesty is the foundation of all the virtues. So I told them, and they were amazed. They said, oh, tell us about it, and they didn't seem to know about it. So I gave them more information as they asked, and it, it culminated in, in the girls like doing little term papers on the comparison of the Muslim faith and the Baha'i faith, and they, they concluded that the Baha'i faith was better. And I said, no, 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 it's all one. It's all one. It's just a continuation of Islam with information that we need to implement for today. 
And they said, no, it's really better. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't dissuade them. <laughs> so what was their parents or their mother's reaction to that? Well, I don't know whether they, she was not privy to that part of the conversation, mm. I don't think. But mm. they, like they did a paper on equality, equality of men and women. In their opinion, the Baha'is are really exemplifying that much more than than they have seen in their own faith. So how was it that you went to Turkey then? Well, my family had decided to go to Israel on, on pilgrimage to see holy places of um, the Baha'i faith. And at, at this point in time, after 9-11, we couldn't visit all the holy places of other faiths that we wanted to visit. But we got a little piece of paper in our packet that said, if you're coming from this country, then do this. And if you're coming from this country, do this. And one of the little instructions said, if you're coming from Turkey, do this. And my husband and I looked at each other and said, hey, let's go to Turkey and come from Turkey. (laughs) (laughs) So we did. And we went there before we went to Haifa, which is the place where Baha'is go on pilgrimage to see many of the the holy places. So what was it like with your visit to Turkey? You know, I I spoke before about how each culture has mastered something. Well, I, I think that Turkish people have truly mastered hospitality. We did not want for anything. We arrived actually on the American Day of Thanksgiving, And there, spread out on the table for our dinner, she had cooked turkey legs. She had cooked a pie with some orange vegetable that was, you know, the closest she could get to pumpkin pie. Mm. She had not cranberries, but uh, some kind of berry sauce to remind us of cranberry sauce. Plus, she had cooked a lot of Turkish food as well to make us feel so comfortable. And they took us everywhere for the whole, let's say, six days that we were there. They transported us. They would not let us pay for anything. We finally asked the maitre d' at the last restaurant. We took him aside and said, now we are paying for this bill, okay? Bring the bill to us. Do you understand? And he said, yes, bring the bill to you. (laughs) We still didn't get the bill. (laughs) So we... we, uh, felt very, very well taken care of. And, and uh, an amazing part of that story is that we had arranged um, with, the, with the Turkish Baha'is to go visit a holy place there where Baha'u'llah had lived, uh, uh, the house of Baha'u'llah there. So we had the directions of how to get there on the bus and the name of the caretaker to talk to. And when it came time to plan the weekend, we said, well, we don't need your help for the weekend. We're just going to take a bus to Adrianople. Well, it's now Adrianay. And they looked at us with this funny look, and they said, well, why do you want to go there? And I was ready. I said, well, we want to see the Blue Mosque and the rest of the, the town. They said, okay, well, that's fine. We will take you there. <laughs> and I said, well, really, we, we also want to... We also want to visit some some holy places that we know of. And they said, okay, that's okay. Give us the number. We'll call them and get directions, and we'll take you there too. 
And since they already knew that we were Baha'is, I was just praying that it was going to be okay. So we arrived, and thank goodness they took us because we never would have been able to figure it out ourselves. Mm. (laughs) Not too many people over there speak English. And she stopped. She had formerly lived in that town. She herself, with our directions, stopped about three times for directions herself. So um, it would have been pretty tricky. And we had wanted to go uh, the back roads that the bus would have taken us on um, because that was the way that Baha'u'llah would have traveled when he was exiled from what's now Istanbul to Adirne. He traveled, and it took him four months to make that journey that for us only took us four hours Mm. by car. But they wanted to take us on the brand new highway. So we were driving on the new highway, and we got into the middle of a blizzard because it was at the end of November. And they were very, very nervous. They couldn't see any cars in front of them or behind them. They couldn't see the side of the road. Visibility was reduced to basically nothing. So I just opened my Baha'i prayer book and I started saying a prayer for protection. And the lady next to me said, what are you reading? Because they were all, "Ah!" they were getting all nervous and crying out and uh, all panicky. And I said, well, I'm reading a prayer for protection. And I'll never forget, the lady said, well, read it loud. (laughs) (laughs) So I read it out loud. And as soon as I stopped, uh, really, within seconds, poof, the driver said, oh, thank God, you know, I can see a car in front of us now. And then they they all turned to me and said, we want a copy of that prayer. Because <laughs> they were convinced that the prayer had been answered. After our, our visit, we finished about, oh, I would say 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And we thought that we were going to drive home because it was going to take four hours. Well, no, no, no. They had another plan, more hospitality. They had arranged with their former neighbors to have about a six-course dinner for us. They said, we are going to take you for dinner at our neighbor's house because it's, it's traditional that after someone goes on pilgrimage, because they, they called it Hajj, and they knew that we were that was part of our pilgrimage, it's traditional for you to come back and have a big dinner and tell everybody all about it. So my husband looked at I, me, and I looked at him, and I thought, are we supposed to do this? (laughs) Wow, okay. So we went to this dinner, and sure enough, the family that we were living with knew so much now about the Baha'i faith that they were able to answer almost all of the new family's questions about the Baha'i faith. They would turn to us every so often to clarify something or another, um, but... The funny part of the evening was that they they served the first course, which was, I think, some bread. And then they had some uh, pickled vegetables. That was it. And my husband ate a lot because he thought, oh, this is what they're offering us, okay. And I just kind of held back because I smelled other food. I, I knew there was other food. So sure enough, they took that course away and they brought another course of soup, and he ate a lot of soup. (laughs) 
but I didn't <laughs> because of my days in Africa where I knew that they would, you know, they would bring more. And so then I took that away and then they brought another course. And he looked at me like, oh, I'm full. <laughs> so yeah. he got very full that night. And we came back at midnight. The lady turned around and said to me, Barbara, do you like ice cream? And I said, yeah. All right, we'll go for ice cream. <laughs> and I was thinking, now at midnight, he, she took us to her cousin's ice cream restaurant. A, a very interesting thing happened there. He, he, he asked me what kind of baklava I wanted. And I looked in this window, and it was filled with baklava. And I said, well, I, I didn't know there was more than one type of baklava. And he said, that's my answer. I will give you one of each of my 14 types. <laughs> so he brought this platter of 14 different kinds of baklava for our table to the upstairs. And then he looked around to see who was in the restaurant, and there were very few people at that time. And he said, my cousin tells me that you have a photograph to show to me. And I said, oh? He said, yes, a photograph of a man. And I said, oh, is it this one? And I opened my prayer book and I showed him a picture of Abdu'l-Baha, who is the servant of God, uh, who is the son of Baha'u'llah. And he looked at the picture and a very beautiful smile came across his face. And he said, ah, oh, that's the picture that hung in our house when I was growing up. Did he explain what were the circumstances of why he would have a picture of Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah? No, hmm. but I can only conclude, you know, back in those days, I think that the Baha'is had to be rather quiet hmm. um, in terms of their religion. And I can only conclude that his mother or father was a member of the Baha'i faith as well. Hmm. Now, so you mentioned the fact that Baha'u'llah was exiled and that members of the Baha'i faith had to be uh, careful. What is that all about? Why is that? Well, I think it's due to a misunderstanding, I guess you'd say. From my understanding, Muslims believe that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, and from their point of view, that means there can be no more prophets after Muhammad. And from the Baha'i perspective, you know, Baha'u'llah declared his mission in 1863, which is way after Muhammad. <laughs> and so for Muslims, they, uh, you know, initially they look at that and say, this person must be an imposter, this person cannot be telling the truth, because we learned in our faith that there can't be any more revelation from God at this point. So from the Baha'i perspective, the revelation from God is never ending. There will always be a connection between the creator and the created. God promised us that he would never leave us alone and he would continue to send us guidance. So some people, some Muslims, realize uh, and investigate and the, the claims of Baha'u'llah are such that they can accept them. You know, they, they realize 
said it's a misunderstanding of that term, the seal of the prophets. For Baha'is, uh, we have emerged from prophecy into the age of fulfillment. So in one sense, their belief is correct that there aren't going to be any more prophets prophesying what will happen in the future. Now we have messengers who are telling us actually how to achieve, how to bring about peace on earth, how to construct the kingdom of God on earth that Christians long for. So what were your circumstances for being able to travel to Africa? Well, the the West Africa trip was to study with an African doctor who had been trained in Western medicine. But then he had gone back to his country and he wanted to study why traditional medicines uh, worked, whether they worked or not scientifically. So I worked with him for the summer and I had been heading towards medical school at that point and that summer really changed because I realized that I, I didn't want to dissuade people from using traditional African medicine the people that I interviewed who had been cured with traditional cures, they said that they really had to go out on a limb if they were Christian because they were told in their churches that it was superstitious and they must never go to one of these traditional healers and it was just a bunch of baloney. And yet <laughs> it worked. <laughs> so this doctor had a botanist and a biologist and a chemist working alongside with him to determine why the cures were working. And he, he happened to be there right at the exact time when the traditional healers were realizing that if they didn't share their cures, that it would die with them because they usually turned out to be the most wealthy people in the, in the village because people would pay them, you know, for these cures. And then they would send their children away to Britain or other countries to be educated, and then these highly educated Africans didn't want to come back and be a, a faith healer, you know, a, a traditional medicine healer. So they didn't have anybody to pass it along to, so then they finally opted to share it with this doctor so that it didn't die with them. And they would sometimes leave out something, so he would try it and it wouldn't work, and he'd go back and say, didn't work, did you forget an ingredient? And, they, and they'd say, well, yes. Did you put this in? <laughs> so he he wrote and published a book on medicines in African traditional medicine. So do you think they did that on purpose? You know, he he seemed to think, yeah, that that, that they were testing him to see whether he really meant what he said. That he really really wanted to document this and show that it really did work. There was an interesting psychological aspect to it, though. One of the fellows that I interviewed, his legs had been run over by a semi-truck, and they were just, like, smashed. And this, is, this had happened 10 years before I interviewed him. And he was walking, well, you know, he, he walked slowly, but he walked unaided. So something something had to happen between the accident and now. And the only treatment he had, he had gone to a Western the best Western-trained doctor uh, place in the whole country, and those doctors had told him, we, we have to amputate or you'll die. You, you know, you're going you're gonna to get gangrene and you're going to die. And he said, but then I'll be a beggar, you know, because there was no work for a person who was an amputee like that. 
at that time. So he paid one of his friends to whisk him out of the hospital without his family's knowledge and take him to a traditional African doctor. And that doctor made a, a poultice, basically, and put this all around his leg. And then he took a chicken, and he broke the chicken's leg, and he put the same poultice on the chicken's leg. And he said, take this chicken home with you, and if this chicken's leg heals, then your leg will heal also. So he did, and the chicken's leg healed. And I really think that that was the the doctor's way of psychologically preparing the man for, yes, positive results. If, you know, if the chicken's leg heals, yours is just a bigger bone. It'll just take a little longer. It'll heal too. That was one of the stories that I shared with the, the research team. What was your opportunity in East Africa? Well, the first time I went, I was going to get permission to marry mm-hmm. because in the Baha'i faith, we believe that we're joining two families together in unity, in a bigger circle of unity, and you're not going to start off on a very good foot if you just run off in a loop or, <laughs> or marry against your parents' wishes. And so we, we, I was going for that purpose. The second time, my, my husband had passed away, and when we heard the news that he had passed away, he had actually passed away while he was in Uganda on a business trip. And my son said to me, oh, I'm never going to see Uganda because he had never visited. And I told him, I will take you. In Ugandan culture, in Baganda culture, a year after the person passes away, they have a memorial service for them. And after that point you can no longer be sad. <laughs> it's just a demarcation. You, you, you can be sad up until that point, but from that point on, you're, you're happy. You go on with your life. So the first day that I met each of the relatives, they were sad. They, they would say, oh, I, and they had a whole big like paragraph that they would tell me about, it's so sad that you've lost your husband, we're so sad for you, and it's, we're sad too. And then, poof, they would change and be happy <laughs> after they had done that because they hadn't gotten to tell me, you know, right away. So they felt like they still had to tell me all the sad part, and then they could be happy. <laughs> and for me, I believe that when a person dies, it, they're just transitioning to the next phase of of their eternal life. And so I was able to get them to stay Uh, one of our Baha'i prayers for people who have departed this world. My husband's name was Sununji, which means a good person. I hoped that they would learn that his soul, that had been like a bird in a cage, now was released from the cage, even though it was before we expected it, (laughs) and he was now winging his way to the rest of his life because the time that we spend on this earthly plane is in human form is really pretty temporary when you look at, at how long your your immortal life is. So I I was able to accept it, I guess, easier than they did. Yeah, actually there's a really beautiful prayer for the departed. I don't I don't know if you happen to have it handy that you could recite for us. Oh 
Um, well, just give me a second. Oh, my God, O oh, thou forgiver of sins, bestower of gifts, dispeller of afflictions, verily, I beseech thee to forgive the sins of such as have abandoned the physical garment and have ascended to the spiritual world. O oh, my Lord, purify them from trespasses, dispel their sorrows, and change their darkness into light. Cause them to enter the garden of happiness. Cleanse them with the most pure water. And grant them to behold thy splendors on the loftiest mount. Yeah, I find that prayer so comforting because it reinforces for me that there's something more after this world. And then it also makes me think, I want to be prepared for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Am I prepared? Yeah. <laughs> My great aunt, when she was 92... And, of course, she was a member of the Baha'i Faith. She asked me, she said, you know, Barbara, I wonder why I am still alive. Because I'm, I'm so ready, you know, to pass on to this next world. And all my friends of my generation have already, you know, died. And, and then the next generation down, most of them have died. <laughs> right. And she said, I wonder why I'm still alive. Well, my dad's answer was, because you bring so much joy and happiness to the rest of the people mm. that are around you. That's nice. So, uh, you know, a little while passed, and I said, hey, have you figured out why, why you're still alive? And she said, yeah, I, it's either because I still have a part to play in God's plan, or I still have a lesson that I have to learn before I'm ready for the next world. And I, and I said, oh, well, have you figured out what part you have to play? And she said, well, I think it has to do with teaching others about God and about um, the Baha'i faith. Could you, could you help me with that? <laughs> because from her generation, she was a very, very good example of how to live the Baha'i life. Um, I always wanted to be like her in every way, but she was very quiet. She, she didn't talk about the Baha'i faith to other people. So I just role-played with her. You know, I shared, you know, how to engage in a spiritual conversation with someone. And, and because I view what I, what I have gleaned from the Baha'i writings as, as medicine, you know, just like back in my days in Africa, this is spiritual food. Um, that people are desperate for. It would help people if they knew some of this information, especially today when people are so stressed and worried and wondering about the future. And anyway, I, I explained to her how to do that. And, and then I gave her some little cards that had some information about basically the blueprint that we have for establishing world peace now. And every time I went to see her, I'd have to have more of those little cards because she'd say, oh, I went to the hospital for three days and I'm all out of those little cards. <laughs> so she, she wanted more cards to share this great gift with other people. I also found that prayer to be very comforting because it was like coming home to, spiritual, to a spiritual home. When you think about entering the Garden of Happiness, and that will be cleansed with the most pure water, and it could make a person hardly wait to get there. That's right. <laughs>
Barbara, what what do you want to do that maybe you haven't done yet? Well, I'm planning for my sabbatical to start to write a book. I'm going to write a book, um, um, a biography of one of the early believers in Baha'u'llah who was deaf because there have been books written about all kinds of other people, but I want to write one about uh, a lady named Auntie Victoria. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for, for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Barbara Lading, Associate Professor of Special Education at the University of South Florida. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.